0: Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you or maybe your company or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie@mission.org, at and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie@mission.org, at and let's chat.
1: I think really what you're looking at are ways that you can 100% of the time know who you're talking to as a company, that when you start with a marketing campaign, that whatever that messaging and whatever you know about them is then reflected in the commerce campaign is reflected in the order management, and then all the way through to the service so that it's a customer experience at that point is actually the experience of the totality of interacting with your brand of discovering it, transacting with it, and then enjoying the product or whatever is after it.
2: Businesses are always looking for the most effective strategies and tactics to create the best customer experience possible. And in the world of e-commerce, that's getting harder every day. We wanted to dig into some of the trendiest ways e-commerce brands are weaving their way through this maze. So we invited our good friend, John Feldman, onto this episode of Up Next in Commerce to show us the way. As a senior manager of product marketing at Salesforce and someone who talks to commerce business owners and operators on a daily basis, John knows a thing or two about what's on their minds, the challenges they face, and the questions they are dying to get answers to. He's also seen firsthand what kinds of major and minor changes e-commerce companies are making that have had the biggest impact. So how are small website tweaks having a ripple effect on call centers? What will happen to the customer journey as commerce moves to the edge? And what kind of technology and platforms will brands need to lean on to win across a new e-commerce landscape? Find out all of that and more right here. Enjoy this episode.
0: Up next in commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Joining us today is John Feldman, a senior manager at Salesforce, who works on Commerce Cloud. John, welcome.
1: Stephanie, great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you. So I think before we start, because we haven't had many Salesforce people on the show, I was hoping you can kind of go through your background, what led you to Salesforce and what you do today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I started doing internet commerce at ATG back before Oracle bought it like 1997 in their professional services group. I was at ATG for eight years and I, I did implementations sort of around the world, honestly. I was in Europe for a while, West Coast and East Coast, and that was super awesome. Uh, I met a ton of people and learned a lot about how people use commerce systems. After that, I went and did a uh, four year stint at a consulting company doing the same thing. I guess it's not as exciting. And then I went to Restoration Hardware for four years. I was the senior director of IT e commerce, which was uh, really rad until I got laid off, which was a super bummer. And as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my career after being laid off, I was like, I really don't feel like there are a lot of jobs that are senior directors of IT e-commerce in a lot of places. And so I thought I'd try marketing. And I uh, I switched over to product marketing. And I've really been enjoying it ever since. I've been in Salesforce for about 2 years now and talking all about the commerce product. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, honestly.
0: That's great. So what does the best day in the office look like to you?
1: We're at a big... Evolution point for Salesforce marketing, I think, particularly for Commerce Cloud, right? You know, the company is built around physical events. You know, the for Commerce Cloud, we had three big, big stations every year. We have uh the National Retail Federation, which is coming up in January. We have Connections sort of the middle of the year, and we have Dreamforce at the end of the year. And those are our big opportunities to talk to clients. And of course, with the pandemic and and travel stopping, those have all gone away, which, you know, if you are a company that sells software, that's problematic because you need to be talking to customers <laughs> to generate leads and keep the He's the machine rolling. And so because of that, we've been trying a lot of stuff with video. And my job is really around sort of like how we talk to customers through video and how we continue to generate a conversation in an audience with potential customers and existing customers uh, when we can't see them in person. And so for me, really fun days are days when we are when we're working on new video stuff. I think that sort of at a high level, a lot of the video that's created is sort of a repurposed webinar. And it, it sort of is just like, You know, here's just a bunch of stuff. And I'm really, for me, the fun stuff is how we can modernize the format and talk to customers in a way that they're like, wow, this is actually interesting, engaging and not like 45 more minutes on payments. Like, yeah. Anyways. So that's what a good day is.
0: Awesome. So on the topic of video, a lot of different companies right now are talking about that as well, about how that's what they're leaning into in 2021. They see a lot of opportunities there, not only with YouTube, but also TikTok. What are you guys seeing in that area?
1: Taking a step back, I think that modern video is YouTube, right? YouTube's the number two search engine on the internet. And so there's a format to YouTube, which is, you know, 10 to 15 minutes long, really clear call to action. And then there are like a million genres underneath that. And I think that as we think about it, it's how do we get into a format that is more fun and interesting and engaging and that has a a clear call to action. So, you know, I think for us it's really about how do we modernize the format? How do we how do we engage on video in a way that isn't just, you know, a 45 minute program on on a topic.
0: So when you're talking to customers every day, what are some of the trends and themes you're hearing from them right now, and maybe how they're thinking about next year?
1: You know, in my role making all these all these videos, uh, we talk to customers all the time because Salesforce doesn't want to make a video unless there's a customer interview, which I think is really smart because at the end of the day, customers are the ones who have the interesting stories. A lot of what we talk about is the impact of COVID and retail sales sales closing or sort of things being pushed to digital. because. You know, if you look at the numbers sort of on their own, they're pretty remarkable. You know I have access to salesforce numbers, and you know it's biggest cyber week by double. you know some of our biggest customers are seeing five hundred percent of what they did. And that's interesting. I think that it hides some of the really interesting storylines. I think it's easy to talk about the numbers, but one of the common things we talk or we hear from our customers is that Covid has pushed a lot of people online. It's increased the volume of their business the velocity is much higher and that in turn has exposed a lot of problems that they've had in their supply chain and that little things that weren't a big problem have become really problematic as the scale goes up and that's manifesting in everything from more attention to deflecting calls from call centers because uh, you know we talked to Hibbert Sports and they were getting a ton of questions about uh, the order cancellations right they had this they implemented online order cancellations and it had this huge impact on their call center, right? I mean, even though obviously you're losing velocity, you're losing revenue when someone's able to cancel the order, the impact of taking that pressure off the call center was worth it.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: The thing which I think is really interesting about those call center things is that it's always just little things that make enormous changes in the volume. I remember at Restoration Hardware, one of the big efforts we had was to just put dimensions of the objects on every every product display page because at the time, the biggest reason for returns at Resto was that stuff wouldn't fit through the door. And we weren't like telling anybody how big it was. So you'd show up with this giant couch that, you know, was designed for like a palace in France and it wasn't going through a U.S. standard door. Really interesting stuff along those sides.
0: Yep. We had someone previously on who talked about spotting bottlenecks and it kind of reminds me of that. I mean, maybe people aren't looking at their customer service department or figuring out like, you know, there's so many things to look at right now. So many companies are saying like their models were breaking and, you know, they had to rebuild things from scratch. And I think kind of taking a step back and figuring out what are the biggest bottlenecks like you guys were doing with your one customer, how they were able to look at you know, their call center is a great first step. And I mean, that's interesting adding order cancellations online.
1: To your point, what I think I'm seeing through a lot of this is that companies are taking a broader view of sort of what the whole customer experience is and looking for ways to, to work around some of those bottlenecks. Because you know, intuitively, as somebody who's done a lot of these implementations, I think that oftentimes those bottlenecks are in places where systems touch or there are like decision points and financial trees. You don't have to turn the whole thing off, but you know, make changes that make it easier and faster for customers through it. It just takes stress out of the whole organization.
0: So what other trends are you hearing from your customers right now? And do you think these things are here to stay? Or do you think the world's going to kind of pivot back to where it was before? And some of these are going to be short-term fixes uh, that maybe aren't needed in the long-term?
1: You know, it's a really interesting question. I was talking to another customer. they were bringing up this really interesting point that, you know, 2021 comps are going to be a really tricky thing to work with, you know, because the market is, was so crazy this year, and, and you know next year you're going to have to figure it out. You know you're going to have to say, like, hey, was the push online to COVID forever or short? to your point. The other thing about sort of what I think the future is going to hold and where commerce is, is that originally, a lot of commerce happened in a retail building, right? And that made a lot of sense. You want the customer that were in your store, like no distractions, ready to go. And then a lot of stuff moved online and customers gravitated towards uh, your website, right? Where you could still have a very curated experience and it could still sort of be on your terms and make everything happen. I think that as I look forward, we're going to see more shopping on the edge, which is where, where products are going to be more deeply integrated at the content sites or in marketplaces, or you're going to be finding places to shop which are not... The traditional website, I think that then becomes a really big customer loyalty question of like, you know, if I'm on a content site and I see an ad for Home Depot, do I trust that it's really Home Depot? Do I believe Home Depot is going to fulfill? Like, it brings that whole question of what is my relationship and image of that vendor up, and am I going to transact with them outside? But internally, we think that something like fifteen percent of commerce next year is going to happen at the edge. So I'm really excited to see how that goes.
0: So how can a brand prepare for that? I mean, like you said, a lot of these brands right now are thinking about community building and, you know, how to build up that loyalty. I mean, there's so many new D2C companies popping up. So there's a lot of competitions. They're all trying to figure out like how to really get ahead. So how can they prepare for that if you're saying now it might start turning into, you know, shopping in other places to where you're not going to see the brand front and center anymore?
1: Totally. And you know, it's interesting, because I think a lot of people approach that as a technology problem, like we're gonna buy a bunch of software, and it's all going to be magic. I, my personal belief is that technology is an enabler, but it doesn't actually solve any problems on its own. If I was to presume to tell someone what to do with their business, it would be that I think you really need to focus on sort of what your customer is, and how you can build loyalty and build a customer experience that is so great, that they would prefer it. You know, I think that you know, if you look at Amazon, arguably the shopping experience is kind of a disaster. But the fulfillment is so strong that you have trust that if you're able to find whatever it is in that haystack, that it's going to come to you and it's going to look larger like the picture has. You know, if I was thinking about going to see D2C and I was thinking about you know how to do that, it's about really knowing who my customer was, what they liked and where to meet them. I think the relevancy of where your product shows up and how that customer journey ties into your existing relationship with that company are going to be the most important things. Because ultimately, we've lost control of the presentation. It's owning the customer and just being wherever they are. Because then that's the consistent thing is you are where they are, not that it's you're always on you know, your website.
0: That's interesting. I mean, when you're thinking about shopping on the edge, is that referring to Amazon or is Amazon kind of excluded? And it's more talking about newer marketplaces that are popping up like the fairs of the world or Italic or places like that where maybe they're sourcing products or is it all of it?
1: Uh, you know, I would argue that Amazon, to some degree, is the edge. You know, their marketplace is yeah. this, you know, anyone can put stuff in there. So your brand has to compete there against the knockoffs and events, the similar stuff. I think the edge is is marketplaces and a host of other non-traditional stuff. I don't, the single sourcing stuff, I'm not as sure about, uh, you know, white labeling stuff, I think is a slightly different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we talk about it, we really mean that, hey, your products are just going to be in places that you never expected. And I think, honestly, we think a lot about content alongside content when we talk about it.
0: Yep. So you were just mentioning Amazon and knockoff products. And one interesting thing, which I didn't know, maybe it's because I don't have an e-commerce company at the moment, is that you have to win that buy box. I mean, did you know this, where you have all these competitors and you actually have to win out the buy box and be able to like brand gate your brand to make sure that no one else can show up under there? I mean, there's so many things like that, that I think a new commerce owner would not, Really know until they kind of start figuring out that people are, you know, now showing up under their listing and there's fraudulent people there. It sounds like a lot of times you kind of find out or see things going wrong until you learn how things actually work.
1: Totally. I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. You know, retail always been monetized, right? Like if you want a good placement at the grocery store, you're, you're certainly paying for it, right? Like, <laughs> that mm-hmm. stuff happens by accident. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't surprise me. I think that it all comes back to the brand management it speaks to like how much of a pain in the butt it is to curate a brand and that you know even if you know at the edge you still have to be controlling it you have to be really mindful of what's showing up on your PDP on Amazon and who they're showing next to you and yeah it's really tough mm-hmm. i think at the end of the day the the control you have is the loyalty, right? Because that transcends the market that you're in. Because if you're like, if you're buying like an LED light on Amazon to like, you know, do podcasting, you've got 62 million choices. 90% of them are all like the same product with different brand names on it. It's like, there's no way to stand out of that marketplace. Even if you have one to buy button, I think it's loyalty.
0: Yep. Are there tools right now? I mean, if this is going to be the way of the future, buying on the edge, are there any tools that curate where you know you can sell things how things are going all in one place for a business owner so if it does start moving to that model and maybe their product is now selling in like 50 different areas i'm just imagining the chaos of trying to keep track of pricing and orders and you know even knowing where you're showing up and what's happening there do you know of tools for that
1: yeah it's interesting um uh, you know certainly at salesforce we have some ideas and tools we have some aggregation tools that make it really easy to plug your existing salesforce commerce cloud catalog into other places but i think ultimately it's When you think about a commerce solution for a company, it's really a platform, right? Because what you're describing, I think, can turn very chaotic. You know, I'm selling on 50 stores, and I have 50 SKUs, and they're all going to different order management systems, and that all gets crazy. I think that, personally, I think the architecture to do this is to have all those places centralized into a central order processing, central order capture, central service thing, right? You know, I think people go into this thinking that my customer is only going to shop for me on one channel, but they may be buying something on eBay and they may be buying something on that content blog. And how do you link those two things together? So the architecture, I think, is always the central order capture and service thing. And that you have uh, either APIs or integrations that allow you to then push that content in a way that makes sense onto the places that it appears at the edge. But it, I think that all the captioner transactional stuff, if at all possible, runs through your engine. I mean, obviously, the marketplace is going to want to own it, but it's not all marketplaces.
0: mm mm-hmm. So we've just finished pulling together a top trends of 2021, and we're talking about platforms. So it's kind of relevant. We've talked to a lot of companies where they've mentioned that they outgrew their platforms. And so one point that we were making in the article was that a lot of companies right now are seeing the ability to scale a lot quicker than maybe prior to 2020, just because you know so many people were pushed online, new demographics are online. like You can grow a lot quicker, at least this year, than maybe prior years. So I'm sure you guys see this as well. New customers potentially coming your way. How do you know they're ready for Commerce Cloud? Like, what kind of problems are they encountering with their current platforms where you're like, oh, yeah, you've outgrown it? Because I think I've heard this at least 10 times from guests who've come on the show. Of Like, well, things just started going wrong and we knew it, but they didn't always have details. It just was like everything was going wrong. Yeah. So I wanted to hear from you guys. Like, what are you hearing?
1: Well, let me take off my Commerce Cloud hat because I think it's an interesting question because I actually think that that's a platform agnostic problem. Like, you know, I'd love to say, oh, you saw those problems, Commerce Cloud. But, you know, I implemented ATG for 15 years. And I think that my belief is that enterprise software is elastic and do anything. And then it's implemented. And then it's like in cement and it's very inflexible for a lot of it. And I think that companies outgrow the, these when either their original implementations didn't model their business processes completely or didn't anticipate the change that they would have to use. And I think that what happens is that, you know, if you're a business person within an, uh, within an organization and you need to like launch wish lists and you're an IT person who hears this and you're like, I like wish lists are going to take me a full year to do. I think those sort of engender those feelings that, wow, like this platform is fundamentally broken. So don't blame the software. It doesn't really matter. I think it means that you need a new implementation and a new uh, truing of your business processes with your IT processes so that what you're putting onto the internet is once again in sync with what you're doing and what your dreams are. That's what I think when people say they're outgrowing is that they just there's so much friction in getting just their basic business processes done that they feel that they need to just throw it out and start over. And I empathize with that. I think that there are truly some systems, regardless of the software, it just it's better to start over.
0: That makes sense. So... Another thing that we talked about in the report was about these demographic change changes that are coming and how many more people are online. How are you thinking about that right now? With meeting those people, you know, some of them are brand new with ordering online; they're now getting used to it, and they're probably pretty sticky going forward. But how are you guys thinking about these new users online?
1: Yeah, it is a really interesting question, and it's you know for me an interesting analogy is fitness, right? In a previous life, I was also a fitness instructor at Small Boutique Fitness, right, and you can arguably do everything you can in a group setting at home, right? There's really no magic. There's no secret thing except someone's yelling at you and telling you what to do. And you've had sort of all those fitness places closed and now everything's at home and you have this huge proliferation of home fitness stuff, Peloton, Mirror, you know, Apple's coming out with the products and all that's really rad. But the, the, the question is, is like how, and I think it's exactly the same with the fitness as it is with the commerce. How sticky is that really, right? When the, when the fitness studios open up again, are people going to rush back to them? Is there something is there something inherent about that in-person experience that people are going to go back to no matter what? And, you know, as I think about that, and both my conclusion across retail and fitness is is the same, which is that some people really miss that in-person component, like regardless, and are going to go back. Yep. I think that even with that chunk of people going back, it's not going to be at least initially to the same level um, that it was before because the internet is a new technology. It's something that, you know, in the last 20 years is, is new and I think is going to have a long-term impact now that everybody's sort of been forced into it for a broad array of daily services, that it's going to be stickier. So I don't think it's going to be quite as crazy. I think the 2021 comps are going to be lower online. I think it'll still be higher than 2019.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree. So we just had Stitch Fix on the show. And it was really interesting because they were talking about starting to at least test out uh, or try out GPT-3, and how they're focused on figuring out ways to process, you know, the natural language, which is what the technology is for, because a lot of these new users are coming on and they're, you know, typing very formally. They want a formal answer. They want to make sure it's, you know, they get a response in the way that they would expect it. And so uh, Stephanie from Stitch Fix was just talking about how she thinks about personalizing the messages and, you know, reacting to the user depending on how they're typing in their question, how they're, you know, asking for things to make sure they meet the user where they're at, which I thought was a really interesting take on personalization and a use of GPT-3, which I hadn't really heard of, at least in the world of e-commerce.
1: It's really interesting. And I would suspect that that's different from vendor to vendor. Stitch Fix probably sees some of that more formal stuff as more professional people are trying to you know put together AI-inspired wardrobes. And I'm stumbling around trying to say it's interesting, right? Because all of those are technologies that ultimately <laughs> replace the interaction that you would have with a human, right? Yep. I worked at Restoration Hardware for a long time. And so this idea of human curation being something that you can't replace with AI, that there's something inherently wonderful and irreplaceable about that, like the person who knows the product line back and forth and is able to work with you to help you identify it. I didn't buy the full Resto thing where it's like, there's no way to do it all with technology because I don't believe that everybody wants that kind of transaction every time. But in these situations, it's really interesting to see how people are trying to make up for that human curation, human taste thing with AI on scale. I don't know. Stitch Fix is obviously doing it great.
0: Yeah, to their credit, they always keep a human stylist, you know, to finalize things and make sure that, you know, they're still choosing things from a human perspective. So they do do that. But I have also seen it go very wrong when most recently I was calling um, a phone provider that I'm working with for my new internet in Austin. And they have it where they have the little robot pretend typing, like it literally sounds like
1: That's horrible.
0: And I'm like, what, what? Like, don't try that. I mean, I know it's a machine, but when you try and add that extra, you know, emphasis to try and prove, or I don't even know what they're doing. I'm like, that actually makes it worse. Like, I'd rather you just tell me this is a robot. If you don't want to talk to a robot, Yeah, you know, let me know. All you
1: user experience people. What are you doing? Like, (laughs) we know it's not, we know it's a robot.
0: You ain't typing. What are you? What are you're not fooling me. And anyone that you do fool, I feel very, very sorry for. Yeah,
1: and it's it's interesting too because it's like it's almost like we're going to address that real person thing by making it by pretending, right? By trying to because I think everybody, no one's surprised when they deal with an AI thing. They're not like disappointed. And so why pretend that there's a person behind it?
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, that was my biggest learning back in the day at Google was like if you're gonna build these new pieces of tech and you're going to, you know, start having machines interact with people for, I don't know, restaurant bookings or whatever it may be, be upfront with them because people are fine with it if you let them know, but no one is fine with it if they feel tricked. And I feel like the same thing now with like chat bots and, you know, anything that's happening on your website, people are fine if they know it's a bot, but don't try and pretend to be you know a person for then that person or the customer to like revisit and be like hey i just talked to sally last time and sally's here again and there's sally again like sally's just everywhere oh wait i was tricked it's not really a person that's when i think that you can do things well or you know you might get away with it once but you actually might anger a customer if you trick them
1: yeah no try to. tricking customers never a good luck right i don't think I, <laughs> my customer journey step <laughs> 6 is i trick them into thinking they're talking to a person <laughs> like yeah. It's uh,
0: a... <laughs> oh, that's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> a customer is never a good good strategy. No, it's
1: not. It's uh I don't know. It's a I would be very curious to know what the designer's life on that last stage of stitch fix is like. Is it that like the AI is coming up with banana stuff and you gotta piece it back together? I think that'd be fascinating to see how much manual adjustment they have to do. I don't know. I think people yeah. are pretty good at feeling out when there isn't a real human behind it.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I think so too. So the other thing I wanted to talk about a bit was trends from abroad. So we've had quite a few guests on the show, some of which I think are actually customers that you guys sent us. And they've found different products, maybe in, um, I don't know, Japan or Thailand or something. And then they either created the product there and brought it back to the U.S. or, you know, they just brought the trend back here and figured out how to make it here. And I wanted to hear, how are you guys thinking about Uh, commerce abroad right now? Like, are you guys looking into that area? Do you even, you know, have customers who are overseas? And where do you see the world headed outside of just the US?
1: Yeah, no doubt. There's sort of two things in there. I mean, the first one is this idea that you would bring a foreign concept to another country and introduce it as your own product. And, you know, certainly that happens all the time. And the other is sort of, if you are a company working abroad, or even the United States, and you want to address the global market to prevent just that happening, how do you do it? I think actually, there really intertwined because we do see a strong trend right now of companies serving a much more global market from their domestic website. 20 years ago, you couldn't find a payment processor that would take international cards in the States, right? Getting stuff shipped out of the country, you know, those those forward carriers, the all that all those services that make it easier, though very expensive to ship out of the United States, really weren't there. But now, you know, you can find a product anywhere and it can be sourced from anywhere. I remember that you know, my son had a, a plushy stuffed animal and like it was given as a gift and it came from Japan and, you know, we were terrified that something would happen to it. And so we bought another one from Japan, which, you know, is, is I think increasingly what we're seeing is that because of global commerce and because of the increasing connectedness, of both payments and fulfillment systems, it's much easier to be fulfilling anywhere in the world. I was talking to Sally Beauty yesterday, and they were talking about how when they launched in Canada and COVID hit, they just filled from all their stores because they didn't have a local DC and they couldn't do the intercountry commerce. It's like really interesting stuff. Yep. But I think that that thing goes back to that question. I think it's going to be harder for someone to be like, I've seen this amazing concept in the Philippines, and I'm going to bring it back to the States because no one's ever heard of this and do it. Because I think that it's so much easier for that company in the Philippines to find and sell into a market anywhere now that... You know, we've actually we've talked about it at Salesforce is that this idea that, you know, you really need to be thinking, even if you're not directly selling to a global audience, and what's going to happen when, you know, someone from Switzerland comes to your b 2 b site and wants to buy your ball bearings? Like, how are you going to make that happen? Interconnectedness is the way.
0: Yeah, that's a really smart take. So, basically, the opportunity that used to be there where people would, you know, go to a country that maybe not everyone in the US has been to and come back and be like, look at this, you know, amazing thing. Like, I mean, that's what happened with Red Bull. Like they went overseas, found it, brought the recipe back here and then, you know, it became a hit. It's essentially that opportunity is now closing because we are able to shop abroad. There's a lot of great things happening with like localization and, you know, the payments automatically switching over to wherever you're entering in from and fulfillment's becoming easier so that there's definitely the gap is closing now.
1: Oh, absolutely. I nerd out on audio stuff and I've got this bananas, like mic arm that I bought from Germany. And I I got most of it from a local US distributor, but there were like some weird parts because of my microphone I needed. And I just went to their site and it shipped from Germany. And like they took my American Express and it came in two weeks. There wasn't some weird customs thing and it wasn't this big process. It's just like, oh yeah, here we go. And it shows up. Yep. Markets everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I do think there's still a big opportunity though to find you know, very overpriced items and just do a D2C method. We just had on Soleil Bicycles and they said that's exactly what they did. And now they're, you know, being sold in Urban Outfitters and a bunch of other big, um, they have a bunch of other big partners, but their bikes are, I think, like $400 and you can customize them. And I mean, there's so many spots that I still see, at least here in like Palo Alto, I see people riding around with these bikes and there's these big, you've probably seen this, John, big boxes in the front where their kids are all in oh, the front of them. Yeah. And these bikes are like, Yeah, like three to $4,000. And a lot of people are going to Europe to have to like ship them from Europe. And then it's even more expensive. And when I see that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh, there should definitely be an option, you know, because it should not be a $4,000 bike to just have a bike with a big wooden box on the front of it. Like how? (laughs) So when talking about potential opportunities or not abroad, the one thing that we were focusing on a little bit was looking at the Internet penetration. And so, right now, a lot of, I mean, this is more a VC who's looking into this, but she had a really good quote talking about places like Latin America that have a really high GDP per capita, similar to China, but then their internet penetration being only 4%. So, how are you thinking about maybe approaching markets like that where, you know, you have really high GDP for the amount of people that are there, they're ready to work, but then their internet penetration is so low, like, How are you guys thinking about that?
1: Uh, It's interesting. I mean, it's... And I would argue this both internet penetration as well as last mile fulfillment.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: A while ago, I did a project on one of the major retailers in South America out of Santiago, Chile. Their big problem was actually getting the product to people and and, and actually payments as well for those final mile pieces. Internet penetration is tricky. I mean, frankly, I'm a little surprised to hear that because I feel like with the proliferation of phones, which I feel like are so ubiquitous right now that... You know, everybody has some ability to transact on their phones, but that could obviously just be my own, like, sitting here in San Francisco bias. You know, the only people that have the capital to do that are going to be like Google and Facebook, who are you would see already moving into those.
0: I think that regulations are definitely something that's tricky in some of those areas. And I just mm-hmm. think the payment thing, and I know inflation has been an issue where, you know, alternative currencies in some of these countries have been looked into, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin or whatever it may be. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But a lot of times I do think it focuses on like, can the people keep their money? Is inflation, you know, out of control? Can they actually spend it? And there are a lot of issues. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity once you can kind of get past that barrier and, you know, figure out how do we get these people online and transacting like the rest of the world.
1: Interesting. Is that a good thing?
0: Uh, I mean, the yeah, I mean, the 4% right now, I, I wouldn't say is good because it's like they're I mean it's maybe good for their local economy because they're only spending very locally apparently yeah, right. but you know they're <laughs> not getting access to the, <laughs> to the rest of the you know the rest of the world which uh there's got to be some reason there I just don't know enough about it and why not but yeah uh, that's when really I saw that quote I'm like oh yeah that's a lot of people who could be coming online over the next like five years or so yeah it's like things go
1: well it's like when uh AOL put users on Usenet right it's like man everyone's online now
0: what's usenet
1: <laughs> what's usenet i
0: mean i i was <laughs> i was on AOL oh. but, but i don't know what usenet
1: is so back in the day uh yeah usenet was like the original internet forum system it was uh it's where like okay. alt.nerd.games and like rec.games.pinball my favorite one in college it was it was where the nerds <laughs> hung out and i remember it was like this exclusive community <laughs> of like you know college students and internet nerds and AOL was going to like Take all of their unwashed people and bring them onto the Usenet forums, and here we are, internet broken. So,
0: <laughs> okay, now I know. I learned uh, something very awesome and new today <laughs> about AOL. brings me brings me brings me back to my days uh, of oh. putting up my away message, brb, going to eat a sandwich. Oh
1: man, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And it's it's funny because oh, we just okay. got you know Salesforce just bought Slack right, and so now all of us are thrust yeah. back into Slack, and everyone's like, "How does any of this work?" That's really interesting. Oh to my feel gosh. so old. How do you do a That's status?
0: <laughs> so we just had um, Slack's CTO on IT Visionaries yeah. actually, and it was perfect timing because then I think it was like two days later, it was like Salesforce acquires Slack, and we're like, haha, we're right on it." Right. Interview <laughs> Step with them.
1: Ahead. <laughs> Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah, time to news Jack.
1: <laughs> It'll be an interesting acquisition. Right. I think the I think it's gonna mm-hmm. be really good for the company. So be interesting.
0: Do you think you guys will be able to figure out the away messages and <laughs> <that'll be good?
1: laughs> well anything connected to the world's number one CRM is gonna have outstanding away messages. So
0: <laughs> that'll be fun. Fun to hear about. The one thing earlier that you mentioned I think is also an interesting trend was about um fulfilling from stores. Mm. So we've had a couple brands where They were like, well, we didn't do this before, but, you know, with COVID and our warehouses maybe getting shut down, and then we had all this inventory sitting in stores, we actually started using them to fulfill the orders. And then we realized that, oh, it's more efficient to do that because if someone orders from California um, and our stores in Oregon, it's better to ship from Oregon than to ship from our warehouse that was maybe in Virginia or something. And so they started using a more localized method and fulfilling it based on where the person was ordering from, which apparently they, like a lot of them weren't doing before. So I could, do you see this staying around even when retail starts to open up again? Do you see them continuing to use maybe retail to also fulfill orders or maybe reverting back to warehouses or 3PLs?
1: I mean, I think that fulfilling from stores is, is for sure the future. And I think that there are a couple of reasons. One is that warehouse space is just getting so expensive, particularly around in, in like city areas. I mean, Amazon just spent $200 million for the old Greyhound lot here south of San Francisco. Crazy money. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you already have a physical presence, I mean, in my experience living here in San Francisco, Best Buy is doing an unbelievable job of this where they, you know, when COVID closed their stores, they turned them into distribution centers and you could do all your buy online, pickup and store. When it reopened, they did the mixed thing. So it's, I think that people will continue to use those mixed models, and I, I think that the benefits are actually on both sides. Right? It helps the consumers get stuff faster, and, and frankly, allows a wider variety of stuff to be stocked because you can have more stuff in stores than you can in a single warehouse. Is my belief. Yeah. But from the company standpoint, you can ship stuff more quickly, and you also, like, you know, my wife just uh, got a job doing this. She works up at Sports Basement, which is a small uh, sports retailer here in the Bay Area, and she's doing e-commerce fulfillment from their store right? And so they have like 15 stores and they use every one of them as a warehouse and their volume over the the holidays has gone way up, but they've coped with it because they have a zillion DCs. Yep. I think the trick to it all though, is that really for it to work properly, you need integrated inventory. And that can be really tough depending on your back end systems. But if you can get that, then like, I think it's, it's a total no brainer.
0: Oh, that's smart. Yeah. We, um, when we were talking to Wolseley, They were saying the same thing about, you know, they used to have um, these stores where, I mean, they're B2B for like plumbing and HVAC and stuff. And so they would have these big stores that you would go and talk to the salesperson and place your order. And um, you could look around and all this. And she was saying in the future, they're thinking about moving to just, they don't even really need a store. They have this huge warehouse behind the scenes, like a shoppable warehouse. And you just come to the curb and continue picking your stuff up. Like they don't really need their store anymore. And that's kind of the way they're thinking about the future could look. For a lot of businesses, either shoppable warehouse or just order online, and if you need to come pick it up in person, you know there's like a very mini, mini, mini store out front of the warehouse that you can transact there if needed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's you know, I think that I mean, certainly I'm biased here in California and I see what I see in San Francisco, but certainly the downtown area, the metropolis of San Francisco, is is still completely shut down. Very few people go down to work, Mm -hmm. and all of that real estate is is shut down, both in terms of offices and the commercial stuff on the ground. And I like. I don't think that there's any reason to think that all that's going to open up exactly the way it was before. I think there's yeah. going to be a lot of innovation in the physical retail space, particularly in places that are based on worker and office traffic and not like suburban weekday traffic.
0: Yep. Yeah. I mean, what kind of innovations do you see coming? Because I yeah, I do think retail will, will be transforming. I mean, any a lot of the retail stores, I think will have to have that in-person experience component or event or something to bring the people you know, into the store because they're so used to shopping online at this point, probably it's like, well, what reason do I have to actually go to a store and, you know, be in person and talk to someone or whatever it may be? Like, what kind of changes do you see coming uh, for physical retail?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, just drawing upon what we've talked about already in this call, I think that you will see a de-emphasis on stores that really are just, or, or the staffing levels in stores that really are just warehouses, right? Like if you are a Costco, you just don't need that many people, right? Because the vacuum is the single vacuum and that's what you're going to buy. I think that the the physical retail will transform into places where you are, where taste is the big thing, or uh, there are multiple products that are equivalent and you want someone to help you curate. This is my resto vocabulary. But I mean, ultimately where a human is going to actually help you walk out of the store with something that's a better fit for what you want. Yep. I think that that's the future because, you know, I, man, where was I? I was in line the other day and like, I'd walk to the place because I just wanted to get this one thing and I'm waiting in line. And I'm just, it's like, There's no advantage to this, to the just, I know what I want. I want to get out of here as fast as possible transaction. But in a transaction Mm -hmm. where I'm like, tell me which one of these is the right one. That's where I think physical retail is going to shine.
0: Yep. Yeah, I agree. A couple of times I've been in line, maybe at, I don't know, a TJ Maxx, not recently, obviously, or something. But uh, I would just give up because I'm like, this line's too long. I came here for a reason. And now I'm impatient. Goodbye. I I mean, that's happened multiple times. I'm like, why can I not just walk in and walk out with this stuff and just, you know, hit my credit card with it or whatever it may be. I mean, I know Amazon was experimenting with that, but to me, that's going to be the way of the future because I don't want to wait in another dang line ever again. I'm spoiled.
1: No, absolutely. And I think self-checkouts, like I did the Amazon Go store and I found the whole thing very weird because they're like, you're very aware Uh, that there's like a camera in the shelf and there's like everywhere they're recording everything.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: But yeah, I I didn't, that was the best ever. But I mean, to your point, right? I think that people get used to a faster transaction and they're not... I totally get you need full service, but yeah, no one has the time to sit and wait. Or I guess some people do, but it gets frustrating and it's a bad customer experience.
0: Where do you see the world headed for e-commerce? I mean, like big picture, any higher level things that you guys are preparing for that we haven't covered yet? Or, you know, why you guys are working on the things you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think probably we're working on stuff which will make having a really amazing customer journey easier. I think that you can say broad... I, mean, I think there's an argument to me that commerce tools on their own are commoditized, right? That like there's... At the end of the day, you can build whatever you need with any of the major packages. And so the question, like from just a pure commerce standpoint, and so I think the question becomes like, what are the tools that are going to help you have a complete customer journey? Because you're going to be losing control of the specific place that you're going to meet your customer. So how do you continue to build journeys that are amazing anywhere? That's really where I think we're going right now.
0: So what things are you focusing on then? I mean, when you say, you know, making sure you have a good customer journey, I think a lot of people say that, but not everyone actually gets like, what does it mean to have a good customer experience and journey? So what kind of things are you focused on right now to make sure that happens?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a fair question. And I think a lot of people are like, headless commerce, but it's like, that's a technology. Yeah. I think really what you're looking at are ways that you can 100% of the time know who you're talking to as a company and identify your customer. And then across what... It, and specifically what that means to customer journey is that means that when you start with a marketing campaign, that whatever that messaging and whatever you know about them is then reflected in the commerce campaign, is reflected in the order management, and then all the way through to the service. So that it's a customer experience at that point is actually the experience of the totality of interacting with your brand, of discovering it, transacting with it, and then enjoying the product or whatever is after it. So that's what we mean by the customer journey, right? The the full thing and how you can make that coherent and make sense and not like, "Oh man, well you're in support's domain, like godspeed, I don't even know what those guys do."
0: Yep. I mean, I love that especially knowing who your customer is. We had on Dom from Fast and that was his biggest thing is, you know, even though they're kind of known for that one-click checkout, he's like we're actually solving for identity so that you know, you know who someone is and you're not constantly having to ask them to fill in the same details that they filled in a thousand other times, you know, in different places. And once you can figure out the identity piece, the customer experience part, will, you know, be easy to figure out because then you already know who you're talking to, what they're looking for, like their payment stuff's all covered, and it becomes very frictionless.
1: Totally. And I think that that's the future, right? When you want to reorder from someone you want to do with one click, you don't want to be like, I, you guys definitely know my phone number, but here it is again.
0: All right, John. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about you and Your awesome work.
1: Oh, well, uh, Salesforce Commerce Cloud, everything I'm doing is up there. Unfortunately, it's all gated, but yo, check it out. I'll make sure they don't badger you too hard if you do check it out.
0: Yep, hit John up if they do. Yeah, totally. He's your guy. All right, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into
0: this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
2: Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.